Hello, and welcome to the Chain Bridge podcast. I'm John O'Sullivan, the president of the Danube Institute. We host the podcast, we're based in Budapest, and we're a think tank that brings together interesting thinkers and doers from academia, politics, the arts, the media, and business to explore contemporary debates. We have the goal not only of challenging old orthodoxies with new ideas, but also of tempering new orthodoxies with old truths. We hope you enjoy this podcast, which is co-hosted by our senior visiting fellow, David Dusenberry, and our former visiting fellow, Dr. Callum Nicholson. Welcome to this new episode of the Chambridge Podcast. Today, our guest is David Martin-Jones. David is a historian of political thought and has previously taught at the National University of Singapore and the University of Queensland, and is currently a visiting professor at the Department of War Studies at King's College London, and our newest colleague here and head of research at the Danube Institute. Today, he is joining us to discuss his recent book, History's Fools, The Pursuit of Idealism and the Revenge of Politics, published by Hearst and Oxford. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. Ah, pleasure. Okay, so History's Fools. So first of all, why are they fools? And indeed, who are the fools? And why does it matter that they are? Yes, that's a good question. In fact, uh, I've been asked that before, and the it, it came as a surprise to me, unsurprisingly, because I hadn't conceived it as in terms of actual individuals, although there are, um, Tony Blair being an outstanding example, and probably Francis Fukuyama as well. But the idea was that the, the concept behind it was the way people thought they were on the side of history as a process that they understood and could take to the next level. So the, the, the idea came from reading Hannah Arendt on revolution when I was writing the book, because I used some of Arendt's ideas on uh, the way in which European political philosophy had taken a wrong turn, she thought, in the 30s and 40s. And she wrote in that book, there is some grandiose ludicrous, ludicrousness in the spectacle of these men submitting often from one day to the other, humbly and without so much as a cry of outrage to the call of historical necessity. They were fooled by history and they have become the fools of history. So it's the, you know, taking from Arendt really on revolution. And so with this, these types of people and, and this trend you've seen in, in the broader culture, uh, well, I suppose I have two questions for you. Um, why did it, did it, is it something that you felt that you needed to be published now? What, what has been happening in the culture recently that makes this uh, a relevant and important critique? I suppose, and, yeah. And secondly, why does it matter, I suppose, to... Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, I think it came about from the fact that I suppose my academic life had begun in Singapore in 1989 after I, you know, had to, uh, that's where I got my first teaching post. And it was at the end of the Cold War. And there was this uh, moment of um, incredible sort of hubris, I suppose, in the West that the um, historical process had, you know, uh, legitimated only one ideology, liberalism, and that the world was en voyage to an openless, borderless future. And it struck me after a few years in Singapore that Asia was very different, and it certainly didn't look liberal in Singapore when I was there. And when uh, Fukuyama then published his book of the article he'd written in 1989, on the end of history and the last man, I thought, well, you know, history is being driven in a coherent direction by rational desire and rational recognition. Liberal democracy in reality constitutes its best possible solution. That didn't seem to me to be the case in, in Singapore. Um, so I did start writing about how flawed I thought this end of history vision was in the 90s. And then it sort of, even though um, after 9-11 it seemed um, limited, uh, it still held, it still clung to the prevailing orthodoxies. In fact, it really defended the idea of intervention in Iraq and Afghanistan to 
make them democratic by uh, military means. And then the financial crisis occurred after 1908, and you felt around 2016 when I was leaving uh, Singapore, uh, sorry, Singapore, Queensland, and returning to London, that the whole period needed a, a kind of reflective memoir about, you know, why did that ideology go so wrong? And what underpinned it? And what survives of it? And what's the alternative, really? I was really struck, uh, getting back just for a moment to Singapore, uh, you describe Singapore, you're actually quoting uh, Danilo Zolo, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, but you describe Singapore as a negative utopia, which I found a, a really uh, suggestive and uh, striking uh, expression. But I'm curious if you could describe just a bit for us what you saw in Singapore that was so radically different from what you had experienced in, in the West. I, I think it was the... Um a, what was surprising when I got there was how um, uh, organized and developed the state was. You know, um, uh, it, it struck me after coming from London, which was doing okay. You know, it was the, uh, the period when Thatcherite reforms were kicking on, uh, kicking in, and there was a bit of wealth around in London. But you know, when I was living in the 70s, it was a pretty miserable experience generally, although it had its good side. But Singapore seemed like this um, brilliant um, uh, jewel in, in, in a kind of tropical um, uh, area uh, with, um, you know, uh, everything seemed to work. You know, there was uh, tremendous public transport. It's got even better going forward. Um, Everybody, um, you know, was employed, and if they weren't employed, they would be put, put back to work in some form or other. Um, there was a brilliant taxation model where, you know, the taxes were really low. There was good in investment in basic healthcare and transport, and the whole thing seemed to work like clockwork. The only problem was there was absolutely no freedom of expression or freedom of thought. And anybody who stood out of line was, as Lee Kuan Yew said, if a nail sticks up, you hammer it down. So that was my impression of Singapore. And I thought, well, it's an administrative framework or formula that works very well if you don't want liberty. And in the Asian mind, um, liberty didn't seem so important as it did in a European context. In the same passage, uh, which in which you describe the negative utopia, you, you, you basically seem to sketch out the fact that there was a, a neoliberal economy in Singapore, which in some ways kind of structurally or formally resembled neoliberal economies in other parts of the world. But there was a, a, a hierarchy, and you, you refer to ethno-religious communities, which sort of structured society in a very different way in the East than in the West. I'm curious, as we begin, if you could say a few words. Well, they had a... Um I mean, Lee Kuan Yew, who was the founding father of the uh, of the, you know Singapore when it became independent from the UK after six, well sixty three, uh, within Malay Malaysia in sixty three, but then they were expelled from the Malaysian Federation in sixty six, so it just became an independent city state under the leadership of Lee Kuan Yew, who was saw himself as the well, he was the founding father, and he was uh, an autocratic leader. But um, he he didn't believe in um, you know he, he he was quite in favour of capital punishment for you know criminal activity, but he didn't go in, into any extrajudicial violence. Everything was punished through the legal system that it was seen as detrimental to Singapore's growth and development, which was the key thing for Lee, you know. So he'd, he'd actually, you know, trained in London, in, in, well, he'd done his uh, uh, degree in, in Cambridge and became a lawyer and was part of the, you know, he was a member of the Labour Party in, in, in the UK, as was the, was the whole leadership of the uh, first generation of the People's Action Party. So they were, they were, you know, labor social Democrats, but he, 
he saw that you know communal violence was a real uh, problem across Asia, given their multi-race, multi-faith um, uh, populations. And he looked at the you know he he you know gone to London in in the late forties. Uh, India was going through partition, and he saw the horror of what he called communalist violence. So in Singapore, um, they insisted on any, they built loads of housing estates, so everybody was housed, even though the blocks were kind of Stalinistic, they nevertheless housed the population. They had a you know, radical um, uh, uh, population program to reduce um, you know, overpopulation amongst the population. They had slogans like, uh, small families have more to eat to encourage, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, people not to have too many children. But in terms of the the mixed race and um, ethnic polities, they preferred a system where nobody commented on on another race or religion. They had a religious uh, bill passed in the uh, early nineties to, you know stop anybody commenting on another faith uh, in a detrimental manner. That was immediately uh, a punishable offense under law. Moreover, in order to manage the the different uh, population streams, the Indian, uh, the Malay, um, and the Chinese, but the minority populations in particular had their own uh, formal structures within the um, uh, constitution. So the, if anything was um, problematic in the Malay community, the, the government would go to the Malay representative and say, what are you doing? You know, what's this problem? Are there drugs? Why is this? You know, we need to clean it up. What do we do? And they did it, you know, after 9-11, um, for instance, Singapore was very surprised um, after um, the uh, you know the NATO forces took a, took uh, Kabul in in two thousand and one two, um, they found uh, in the ruins of the um, Taliban or uh, well, Al Qaeda um, uh, center in 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 um, Kabul a videotape that was a videotape application from. Uh, um, uh, uh, a radical group in Southeast Asia known as Gemma Islamaya. And the Singapore branch had, had sent a video to uh, bin Laden for you know, uh, funding to organize attack on um, the American embassy, the Israeli embassy, and the British and Australian high commissions, and also attack a railway, a, a metro station which would have been um, accessible by the American fleet that was uh, had a had a had a, uh, a base in Singapore. So this had been funded. This was a, there was obviously then a militant Islamic group in Singapore um, that um, they didn't know about. They found out about. Well, what did they do? They went to the religious authorities and they said. Right, you've got to, you know, anybody who um, is, has been, you know, identified in this um, program with Gemma Islamaya has to be re-educated. They have to go through a process of rehabilitation. They weren't imprisoned. They went through a period of, of intense de-radicalization by um, Islamically approved scholars that, you know, didn't believe in that the Quran justified this kind of violence. Moreover, in the area around the mosque, the Grand Mosque in Arab Street in Singapore, you used to be able to go there before 2001, say the late, late, late 90s, and you could pick up radical literature in Malay, like you could get Saeed Qutub, um, Milestones in a Malay version, other radical uh, is Islamist thinkers. Within two years of this, this attempt, there was no bookshop selling Islamic literature anywhere near the mosque. Every bookshop had been turned into a halal restaurant. You know. So that, that's the way they um, do it, really. And it was very effective. There was never anything um, 
we kind of bring the the conversation back to the the book's title. I'm still mm. very interested in, the, in this title. That the so the title's "History's Fools," mm. but the subtitle is "The Pursuit of Idealism and the Revenge of Politics." So I suppose uh, what ideals uh, are these that people were holding, and what went wrong? Well, the ideals were the um, <clears throat> you know the universal promotion of liberal values that all the world apparently subscribed to, and therefore all you had to do was promote them and um, proselytize about them. And even after 2001, you sort of kind of enforce them by, by military means. So it was this um, idealist belief in the liberal progressive agenda. And then as it evolved or mutated, it became increasingly woke in its progressivism and became sort of... Um, antithetical even to the liberal ideal in terms of a, a global justice model. It became increasingly infused by a sort of Habermasian uh, critical theory and uh, a sort of um, uh, a Said-influenced Orientalism. And, and the revenge of politics would be, I suppose, the idea that in all this sort of... Um, uh, almost messianic belief in a, a liberal end, um, they fail to notice, well, you know, China is rising because it's been introduced into a liberal trading order under the WTO in 2002, and yet it's not in any ways liberalizing, but we're allowing investments in there, we're allowing Chinese growth. We already know that the party is um, not exactly pro-liberal. Um, and also with Russia, you know, by 2008, it was obviously Putin was not in favor of any kind of liberal model. So it missed what elsewhere in the book is called the rise of the revisionist powers. To what extent are the ideas and the ideals you're talking about post-Cold War phenomena? Or to what extent are they actually ideas that are more deeply rooted uh, in history? I mean, in a sense, are they products of a longer history or are they ignorant of that history or indeed both? Probably both. You know, so, so it feeds off um, a classical liberal understanding um, of liberal universalism that um, everybody aspires to individual freedom, um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that this is a universal aspiration. And after 1990, there is the, uh, you know, the, the belief and the possibility that you could create um, a more open world that follows these seemingly universal values. It was also, um, I think, you know, from the 90s onwards too, the, the former you know, socialist Marxists of the 70s and 80s started redefining themselves in ways that took account of these historical changes as they saw them to promote a, what you know Habermas and others called a radical democratic agenda, which actually accepted the basic democratic arrangements that had led to the collapse of uh, uh, Soviet communism in the 70s and 80s, but required democracy to take on a new critical um, egalitarian edge that compensated not only uh, minorities within the West, but externally for their oppression and um, victimization. So off the end of history went claims for social justice, diversity, etc., which basically had inhabited a liberal episteme, but now took it in a far more critical and, um, I suppose, idealistic direction that um, became more and more, ironically, intolerant, even though liberalism begins with its tolerance of different viewpoints. Is some of this, though, with these in the post-Cold War hubrises, if you want to call it that, uh, of the West, how much of that is just a, a symptom of of the sudden unipolarity we had after the end of the Cold War. I mean, all nations have their own and, and communities have their own origin myths. They, they obviously have their own PR. To what extent is it us drinking our own Kool-Aid? Is it a, a case of us just really believing our own PR? Because, I mean, a lot of 
the, the vicissitudes of fortune in history mm. lead to some nations rising, some falling. It's not always because we had the right theory or the right idea. To what extent is a lot of these, the, this, this public, um, I suppose, uh, this public sort of performance of virtue that we see in the West today, how much of that is us just trying to give a justification and explanation to why we have been for some decades until very recently in a very dominant position? I mean, they, they talk about it as if it is a it was all um, something that had a clear theoretical reason. It had a clear set of principles behind it, rather than just the the, for, the good fortune of history. Um, so, to what extent do you think it's it's just this is all uh, these ideas that have emerged the last few decades are really just a form of of hubris, which is a consequence just of um, chance and of the way history worked out. Well, I, I think I would say it was contingency and chance that that created that moment after 1989 but it it sort of um i suppose if, if you were uh, being structuralist about it you would say you know in in 1989 the the model of um economic liberalism that had been pushed very strongly by reagan and thatcher seemed at the time to um answer a lot of problems both locally and globally about the um, economic growth uh, universally. So the idea of a borderless world kind of made economic sense. It certainly made sense to big business, you know, or industrial conglomerates relocating manufacturing bases in, in Asia to generate profits, to create growth. And it seemed a bit of a win-win game and on top of that, you know, so from the economic infrastructure, if you like, you've got an ideological superstructure that saw a, a liberalism with more progressive aspects to it, more um, glo more socially just, more inclusive, more anti-racist, um, being the way the future goes. And multiculturalism became a, a, a feature of that. So... It was multiculturalism at home and universalism abroad was the formula for creating a, a brave new borderless world. And it, you know, you, you quote somebody like Tony Blair, who's the archpriest of all this, in his biography, autobiography in 2010, wrote, for almost 20 years after 1989, the West set the agenda to which others reacted. Some supposed, some supported us, some opposed us. But the direction of the globe, the destination to which history moved, seemed chosen by us. You know? I suppose this is the, the there's an implied, uh, well, going back to the, the, the title of the book of History's Fools, is the foolishness, in a, in, in a sense, the, the sense that we can ever transcend history. Fukuyama's idea of the end of history implied that we uniquely, in the history of humanity, have escaped history itself. That's right. Is that is that the foolishness? Yes, basically. I mean, it is this sort of... You see it as a hubris, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. And, it, it, you know, I, I actually say, you know, it resembles Aeschylus, you know, in some senses. It's our modern tragedy. Although, to quote, I mean, the, you know, presiding geniuses over the work, you know, my influences are, are Arendt and Michael Oakeshott. And Oakeshott, you know, writes somewhere... Um, a single homogenous line of development is to be found in history only if history is made a dummy upon which to practice the skill of a ventriloquist. And that's uh, the problem, I think. One of the things you seem to be charting in the book is that, uh, as you put it in one place, that Asia has enjoyed an asymmetric relationship with the borderless world that has geopolitical repercussions. So in a sense, you're looking both at the economic uh, creation of a borderless uh, system and at the geopolitical realities which both interrupt and undergird this system. Um, but also the fact that the, the two main regional players have adopted, in a sense, different relationships to the economically borderless neoliberal yeah. post-Cold War order. And um, I'm curious if you could at least begin. This is a theme I'm quite interested in uh, and, and seems to me to, in a sense, run throughout the book. If you could begin to say something about the fact that the two 
the, the two blocks which, or, or more blocks, perhaps you could say a bit about that, but however many blocks which emerge from the Cold War begin to adopt different trajectories, even though they are all contributing to a kind of increasingly unified economic system. Yeah, well, I think when I, when I wrote that, it was obviously with uh, the rise of China in mind and how it was creating not just um, Chinese growth, but in, in increasingly affecting um, its region very strongly, particularly Southeast Asia, where I used to travel to, to a, a lot, and how it was um, using mechanisms within the um, Asia-Pacific, like the Association of Southeast Asian Nations or um, the um, Asian Investment Bank as vehicles to secure um, not only China's growth, but its growing um, uh, economic um, uh, control of the Asia-Pacific in a way that enabled it to increasingly see, for instance, the South China Sea as uh, a Chinese lake, you know, so that by 2012, Xi Jinping had issued his nine-dash line claiming the whole of the China Sea, South China Sea. Now, the, the, that aspiration has already all, always been uh, a Chinese um, understanding, if you like. If you went back to the Ming Dynasty and there was a Ming dynasty idea behind a greater China. Um, but until you got to Xi's period, until you know China had massively grown uh, from after the Deng Xiaoping reforms and then China's uh, um, joining of the World Trade Organization and the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the various uh, uh, international organizations that were set up with under liberal guidelines, but China uh, rode a coach and horses through things like, um, you know, the state playing the major role in its uh, investment developments and not abiding by WTO guidelines if it didn't suit them, like it didn't, you know, abide by UN guidelines if it didn't suit it in terms of the uh, UN law of the sea, for instance, in Southeast Asia. But it was only after about 2000, from 2009-10 onwards that China now had the muscle to back up its, um, its claims uh, with force. Um, and so it started building structures in the South China Sea. And also it used the Belt and Road Initiative to uh, dominate Southeast Asia. And anybody who didn't fit in with the Sinocentric plan um, wasn't, you know, necessarily, you know, um, imprisoned or anything. They, the investment would stop. So, you know, when Vietnam wouldn't let uh, China drill oil near its, in its offshore waters, Vietnam lost all Chinese investment. The Philippines that took um, China to the UN court in, in The Hague over the, the Paracel Islands, which the Chinese had virtually occupied, um, got a positive decision from the UN saying that, you know, China had acted illegally, China said, this is just a piece of paper. So um, that, that's the sort of, so, so the asymmetrical growth also facilitated the emergence of an understanding in China that we don't need Western values. You know, we can do it. Um, we need the market. We, we need the technology. Uh, we need the science and we can buy that or we can, um, you know, have deals with American or British universities, send our best people there. They won't learn liberalism uh, because, you know, a lot of the universities aren't teaching it anymore. They're teaching critical theory and Orientalism. So we don't see anything valuable that they're teaching. Uh, we come back to China. We take the technology, the ideas, but we don't take the philosophy or the politics and we develop our own distinctive model, you know, of a, a greater China. And the greater China is not just into Southeast Asia, it's into Central Asia. So nobody writes very much about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which grew from about 2002 onwards to 2017-18, when it embraces 44% of the world's population and is... Um, 
the largest multilateral security organization on the planet, uh, which which does not follow liberal values, you know. And I'm wondering, in light of this, whether we could, and in light of Callum's line of questioning, whether we might be able to achieve some sort of formula, and that is that the hubris of the West in the post-Cold War era was to see liberalism as an end, the so-called end of history, and to fail to reflect upon the fact that for other actors and blocs, liberalism is a means. That's right. Is this, is well, this, this, a... this actually links as well to the, the question I had for you, is that the um, that we, we, history's fools, I think, referring to the West in the last 30 years, but if the implied idea is that they've been in pursuit of ideals which are not reconcilable with reality. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder when we look at China and we see Xi Jinping thought, when we see uh, a zero COVID policy that is in defiance of the reality on the ground and the economic cost, when we see the sinocentricism as a goal that is so um, uh, exclusive that if you don't sign up to it, you don't receive funding, Vietnam and the Philippines. Can we look at China and say they are also history's fools? Yeah, well, uh, they suffer from their own version of hubris, hubris with Chinese characteristics. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose on that, looking at the pattern in what you've been talking about, it seems there's an old word for this, which is uh, wiggery. Mm. And uh, uh, this notion that history uh, inevitably progresses towards a particular goal. That isn't new to the last 30 years. I don't think it's unique to uh, the West, although I think I once read a book that said uh, called the history of uh, called uh, the geography of political thought, and it was written by a, an American psychologist. And he had a student who was Chinese, and the student came to him and said, "The difference between you and me is that you think the world is a straight line; I think the world is a circle." Mm -hmm. And the point of the book was to say the Chinese see the world in a different way. We see it in a linear, sort of teleological, whiggish manner of progressing towards a goal, whereas the Chinese see it as more circular. Um, so I'm wondering really here, do you see there a deeper structure in what you're talking about as the problem of, of wiggery? Is it this problem of, of presuming that history has a goal? Yeah, I, I think the, um, the problem with the, um, well, as you say, yeah, it's a version of, uh, of, of Whig thought with um, even more universalist characteristics that it can you know, embrace um, China, um, South Asia, Africa. Um, but it, it is this understanding that um, uh, there's a single homogenous line of development uh, to be found in history, but they can only be found if you speak this language of the ventriloquist dummy. But um, the it seems that there there is a if you don't follow this instrumentalist line, then what does the West do? It seems to recur to as you said, is an Asian pattern, but it's also a, a Greek understanding that the, the, the world is cyclical, that you know, um, empires rise and fall. Uh, there's no trajectory to history. Um, the, the idea of an, uh, a historical eschatology is um, something that was um, you know, Christian and then taken up um, which Jakob Taubes calls Occidental eschatology. I think this is quite a, a nice formulation. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, if you if you didn't follow that eschatological direction, what do you go back to? You go back to the cycle, you know, and you can see that um, a lot of the you know you could see it in in the West, for instance. You know, you take the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, it generates the city of God, or um, if it if it doesn't, um, if if the um, the West is not in an uh, ascendancy, it seems to require a declinist literature. You know, so that you know the end of the First World War, you got Oswald Spengler in the forties and fifties. You got um, well, Orwell was quite you know. Um, you know, sort of pessimistic about the future of um, the West. Um, and, you know, Toynbee writes his study of history in the 50s, in which he calls talks of civilizational suicide. So you've also, so at the same time as you've got this hubristic model, you've also got this um, alternative model that is both cyclical and sees civilizations dying or failing. And we're living in that kind of interstices at the moment, I would say. 
Although there's a bit of an irony in the fact that, at least formally speaking, it is the Chinese who still are, they they are in a sense the the among the last survivors who hold to an ironically European and Occidental eschatology, namely that of uh, the, the the communist vision, right, the Marxist-Leninist idea of history. And so, in a, in a strange sort of way, there is a certain competition of two differing eschatologies. Yeah, I think so, and also. It's interesting that the Chinese worldview is hugely shaped, although it wouldn't recognize it, by its encounter with the West. And I think, you know, how civilizations encounter each other, which was the subject of an earlier book I wrote on the image of China in Western social political thought, is always very interesting because you think it's a one-way street, you know. It's Western values imposing themselves upon an Asian other, but actually, it never works like that. You know, the, the the Asian effect on the West is not negligible, but the West's effect, interestingly, on China, picks up ideas that you think, well, oh, that's interesting. They're all reading Carl Schmitt, um, Leo Strauss, and Samuel Huntington in China, who are not being read in the West, and they see that as an insight. Uh, coming back to your point of the stupidity of liberal universalism, really, and defending the, the party, you know, kind of sovereign decisionism in, in, for instance, Hong Kong, which was justified on Schmittian grounds, you know. I wondered, and this is just me, uh, uh, I suppose, just posing a, a framework here to understand. Um, I wonder if um, until about 1850, before the Industrial Revolution really uh, took hold, Everyone in their lives throughout the world would have been constantly faced by the, the cyclical nature of being. Certainly, if you work in agriculture, you're very mm. conscious of the seasons. Uh, you're also very conscious before antibiotics of the um, uh, of the, the the ease of misfortune in life, uh, and I think often that breeds a certain humility. Uh, through that comes, I think, theology because you don't know where you'll be tomorrow, so you have to have a certain faith. Uh, but it seems to be that, that the metaphors people would have had would have been quite organic of things rising and falling, and, and there's humility in that. But then with the Industrial Revolution, you have the the organic replaced by the mechanic. You have the cyclical replaced by the linear, and the humility that leads to theology replaced by the hubris of, I suppose, technocracy. Mm. And uh, and I wonder how much of this this foolishness, this notion that one or indeed a community or a society or indeed humanity can transcend what people had known for millennia that that our lives and everything about it have a cyclical uh, cyclical, uh, cyclical nature and organic nature which breeds a certain humility indeed breeds uh, a need for a theology uh, i wonder if if the foolishness of rejecting all that is a consequence or to what extent is it a consequence of industrialization and the imposition into our lives of mechanisms i think um you know modernity and technology and anomy are um, you know central movers in our um, you know understanding of politics and um, our, our, our or our predicament as another you know um, uh, great thinker Ernest Gellner put it um, you know the predicament is that we can have a better standard of living but we have to to accept the iron cage of modernity which is like largely value free, but it delivers you, uh, or it can deliver you, your your car, your washing machine, and a reasonable and antibiotics and um, you know antidepressive pills. But there is no um, there is no um, transcendent anymore. There is no enchantment in the world. We live in a disenchanted condition, and. You know the 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 point of um, politics in its um, you know kind of um, less hubristic moments was to adjust the society to hopefully a rising standard of living, but without any kind of transcendental possibilities to it, and that people would just be satisfied with. Um, TV or um, other, you know, forms of entertainment, 
Isn't there also something worth reflecting on in the fact, I mean, you, you, you discussed the fact that the, uh, the precisely the kind of hyper-industrial uh, project, which we've seen in China in the last uh, 30 to 50 years, that actually in a strange sort of way, the goal is um, not so much progress as restoration. You, you use the phrase the China dream, and you say that basically the Chinese seek through this mechanization with its attendant, you know, disenchantment, so on and so forth, but they seek through it the restoration of a, uh, you, you describe it as a pre-colonial role as uh, the central kingdom. Is, is this, in a sense, um, a, a divergence between the West and the East that they are using uh, industry in order to recover something and we seem to be using industry uh, in, in, again, a more Whiggish fashion. Yeah, I think... think Utopian fashion. I, th I think the way I'd, I'd see it is that certainly the West in its hubristic moment um, considered that you know e the economic uh, openness of the markets, the the, the, the tr changes that internet and AI were bringing about would create this borderless inter interconnected world that would be secular, really. And, and, you know, there might be slightly different characteristics to democracy in, say, Japan or Singapore, but they'd all have elements of what you would see as a basically accountable government structure and that we could all we, we were moving towards a you know international relations theorists thought it as a version of the Kantian peace you know that we were you know we were beings on or, or, or you know we might not be there yet but that's the direction we were moving towards as a, a form of eschatological hope as uh, Kant put it but um, the Chinese version was not that really. It, it, it wanted, it saw itself in Toynbean terms as having almost been destroyed by the West, the challenge, and it had responded through the party in achieving, you know, solidarity of China and the integrity of China, and to see the world not on a course of liberal. Um, uh, you know, universalism, but a reassertion of the world as it had been with China as the center of the world economy. And that was also facilitated by a lot of Western commentary from, well, you know, um, until just before COVID that, you know, Asia Pacific is the future. Asia Pacific is where all the growth will occur. Part of the Brexit dream is, oh, we're leaving Europe, will become part of the Asia Pacific. That's where you know, our growth, our, our development, our reinvented Britishness will be, um, you know, recognized and developed. Um, another delusion, perhaps. You know. I just want to go back to something that you said earlier, but actually links, I think, to David's question about how the Chinese have used the sort of industrial methods, uh, which is that when we talk about, well, when you talked about modernity and, and Gellner, um, and indeed, when you talk about the foolishness of history's fools, I think it, 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 it's just that it will succeed. But also, you know, if you look at all the um, development literature in the fifties uh, and sixties, particularly comparative politics development literature, you know, um, Almond and Verber, the um, the all the American schools of um, you know, democratic theory or democratization, uh, the assumption is that. Um, Modernity uh, requires Westernization. You know? Yeah. So that you know, once you the, get the Rostow's uh, doctrine of uh, right. the five it's, stages of economic growth. Exactly, yeah. and the you know, Lipset, the idea that the preconditions for liberal democracy um, require the growth of a you know a, a middle class, educated middle class. Once you get liberalism, once you get a liberal you know development. There will be an inevitable, even though it, the developments occurred under autocratic guidance, the creation of a liberal middle class will inexorably produce pressure to require democratization in some kind of Western way. You know, There's and that thesis was dominant really down to well, quite recently. Something I find very interesting about those 1950s theories, because particularly from from now we have some perspective on them. If you look at Walt Rostow's doctrines. Mm -hmm. 
his ideal of the goal of all these nations when they developed was basically to become uh, an ideal of 1950s America. Yeah, it was sorry. a hyper-consumerist yeah, yeah. culture. Well, the, the same is true of Fukuyama. You know, Fukuyama is modernization theory by um, end-of-history methods, you know, uh, via Koyevi, you know. But the last couple of pages of um, the end of history and the last man, do, do you recall them? It's, it's like... The world is like a wagon train, you know, um, a very American frontier metaphor. And all the wagons, i.e. the various states, are heading across the desert. Some of them have stuck because they've been attacked by Indians. But the general destination is the happy town of polyarchy at the end of the road, you know. So it's it's always been that... um, you know, informing that modernization project from an American perspective is that, you know, America is not just the exception. It is also um, where everybody really wants to go. The the interesting thing with that, just thinking of it now, that Fukuyama analogy of the wagon train is um, that uh, the goal in the end is the coast of California. And it's interesting today that the values of the world are being given by people in California, which is quite, I don't know if it's a coincidence. David. Well, I was really struck. I mean, part of the problem um, is that you seem to indicate that part of the problem with this atrocious metaphor of Fukuyama's Mm -hmm. is that different um, actors in the world do not necessarily agree on what the wagons are. And this really struck me. uh, At one point, you say that Asian regionalism, unlike Europe's, assumes the nation state order. And it seems that Fukuyama and many Western thinkers have spent the last 30 years sort of, in a sense, um, imagining or, or in fact, kind of willing the nation states of the West out of existence. And this process has not been undertaken and has self-consciously not been undertaken in other parts of the world. And I'm curious if you could... Uh... Well, yeah, I, th- I think it's, um, you know, they're, 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 it, it was quite clear that, um, you know, the Western project of the European Union, which seemed to be the model of regionalism, you know, because it's a Western model, it must be the best, or, uh, well, particularly the European model, because it seemed, you know, it, it's a response to two world wars that are uh, arguably brought about by um, nation state um, uh, or nationalism um, and, you know, it, its repercussions, then that the solution for Europe would be to pool sovereignty in some ways to create a, a greater Europe which um, doesn't have these nationalist issues and in its Habermasian version would not just be European, it would be the basis of, um, you know, extended associations globally. Um, So the regionalism model seems to be, you know, is initially, you know, the the key one is Europe, and other states seem to copy them, you know. Well, ASEAN then, in the context of the 90s, seems to be, oh, it's an Asian model. It's got sort of Asian values, but it's like Europe. It's being, um, it's it's going regional, in other words, against the nation state. And, you know, the EU, um, you know, I, I, I taught at the University of Malaya in, in Kuala Lumpur, which had a EU ASEAN, you know, program in which these EU types, you know, funded by the EU, would come over and preach um, the gospel of regionalism, which the Asians were supposed to, oh, that's very interesting. Uh, we're sort of following that model, you know, and they'd go away happy. Well, you're not quite there with uh, a common currency or, uh, well, absolutely not they weren't because they weren't interested in pooling sovereignty or um, pooling, uh, you know, having a common court of justice or um any other forms of, of, of common, um, uh, you know, uh, taking away from, from the sovereignty of the states. So its foundational treaty, the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation of um, 1967, was to inscribe the non-interference in, in the states that make up ASEAN. And this was understandable because... In you know the, these were new states formed out of the you know the, the 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 collapse of European colonialism in Southeast Asia. Many of the boundaries of these states were left by 
colonial you know rule so indonesia had a shape left by the dutch um the british holdings were swept into one conglomerate called malaysia but singapore was you know thrown out you had vietnam cambodia laos which were former french colonial holdings they didn't have very they had a lot of history or well, they had a lot of um there was a lot of territorially arguable disputes between all these states over territory, over peoples in in different countries and how they were treated. And there'd been war, you know, uh, a sort of a confrontasi uh, engineered by um, uh, Sukarno's Indonesia with the new state of Malaysia and Singapore, which had been quite a brutal uh, small war uh, between 65 and 67. So ASEAN's formed after that. And the, you know, the sort of governing thinking is, you know, you might be doing things that we don't like with our, you know, with the Chinese, if we're Singaporean or with the Muslims, if we're in Indonesia, but we accept your borders and you accept ours and we don't interfere. And any, any common agreements we make are consensual. So there's no movement on anything like um, environmental policy or um, migrant issues without a common understanding. And anything that goes that, that there's no consensus on, they don't have a law to do with. You know. So um, what what occurs is that you get over time some barriers are broken down, particularly to trade, but basically there's very little market integration in ASEAN all their trade is with outside partners so the model is one you know not to rock the boat of the regional order but there's no attempt to grow um, a kind of integrated community in, in on the European model I mean this is and, and actually it works <laughs> This is so fascinating, but most of your comments in the last few minutes have been on the question of the state in, in Asia. And I'm curious if you could say just a couple of words about diverging conceptions of the nation, because in, in, the, uh, in the West, the post-Cold War uh, kind of ultra-liberal ideology has been not only committed to a certain idea of the, the movement of goods, but very much the movement of people and kind of global citizenship and so on and so forth. And my impression is um, that in Asia, it's not only the state which is conceived differently, but to some extent, the nation. Can I just integrate David's question into mine, because I think it's on the same lines, which is that when you were talking before about, and David's point about the the uh, different nations having different conceptions of what the wagon is mm. uh, earlier, which I think links to your question now about different understandings of, of what is, uh, you know, what is the object, what mm. is the goal. And, uh, and it occurs to me that so much of the rhetoric that we've heard the last 30 years, take Fukuyama, for instance, is from Americans. And uh, Fukuyama was an American, given mm. an American analogy. But America is often discussed, and you can Google this phrase. If you Google um, uh, the American experiment, left and right, everyone uses this phrase that America is an experiment. Mm. But being an experiment implies, in a sense, something done in laboratory controlled mm. conditions, perfect conditions, and can we produce the result we want? And I think to some extent, you can argue that to the extent to which America is the, the, the global hegemon or, the, or, the, or the, uh, the shining beacon on a hill or whatever you want to call it, it's something that has emerged in relatively controlled laboratory conditions. I mean, obviously, it's a very complex history, but compared to other nations, they created for themselves through you know, a great deal of violence, actually a sort of blank slate in which to practice that experiment. But I'm wondering, to what it implied in this, and I think implied in, in, in David's question is, to what extent can we ever generalize from the American laboratory experiment to the real world of everyone else, nations that have been there for thousands of years, in a sense? And, uh, and in a sense, is this part of the foolishness, again, of the West having created something in laboratory conditions and believing we can generalize from it? But I would just add that this description of the United States is itself a piece of ideology. And I quite, would say yeah, that this, this self-conception is, among other things... Uh, but it's one... It is an ideology, but I suppose... The point is, if enough people have begun to believe it is the truth, of course, absolutely. it becomes the frame of reference. Is is that this presumption that it is a laboratory experiment, and indeed that it created something pure from that, that is an example to everyone else? 
is that in a sense the sort is that the the essence of the foolishness that you were talking about this conception of the west which is one if it was built in anything was something people believed to be a sort of experimental context uh, but the rest of the world our lives are not experiments you know if you if you come to you you know in the old world things are are complex and uh and i wonder to what extent is there a hubris is there a foolishness in presuming we can generalize from that very americana frame of reference to the world well it's uh interesting series of questions um yeah we really layered them up there sorry yeah, about that. <laughs> so um uh it's a in terms of the understanding of, of of a nation in Southeast Asia, it's it, it's quite interesting because, um, and also how you organise your polity and how you relate to the West. So, uh, or particularly to, to the American idea of uh, democratisation, because I mean all the Southeast Asians. Well, you know the Southeast Asia. We should remember is the place where the Cold War went hot. You know so. You've got uh, the Vietnam War, which is um, crucial to the formation of ASEAN, right? And, and so, the Korea, the Korean and conflict Korea War as well. As well. Yeah. But uh, you know, if we focus on Southeast Asia or on that bit that I, I particularly know, South Korea has got a similar uh, but slightly different trajectory because South Korea can be um, was a hermit kingdom, and it is um, you know a, 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 you know a sort of um, uh, Korean uh, population. There's there's no minorities in Korea. You know, um, the problem in in Southeast Asia is that they're um, very diverse ethnic, religious um, understandings. How do you create a state that's just been uh, something that's left behind as the West, you know, decamped under decolonization, and it's not uninteresting that one of the um, major thinkers on nationalism did did his work on Indonesia. You know, Ben Anderson. You know, uh, ben, imagined communities, and he sees Indonesia as, as as a community that's imagined after the Dutch leave. You know, and that imagination draws upon Indonesian pre pre colonial practices of. Um, uh, syncretism, really. And I mean, that text has been used in a sense to imagine Western nations as post-colonial mm. <laughs> nations of a sort mm. that you're describing. Mm. Is, that, is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah. yeah. So um, and the other point about America is that although its model, you know, obviously, you know, the, the, its ideal doesn't translate, you know, it, just you know, because groups do not operate um, in the same way, parties don't operate in the same way in Asia because they're informed by local practices and traditions. You know, and there, there was always historically this idea of um, uh, you know, whereas you know the, the you know the Western way of reasoning is is the square of oppositions. You know, Aristotelianism. Asia never saw it like that. There was always a, a potential to blend understandings. Um, that was the way of the um, yin and yang. You know, they were brought together in the Tao. Similarly, in Southeast Asia, there are patterns of syncretic adaptation. So, the old um, uh, Mataram kingdom of of, of um, Java um, had three calendars. You know, it had a Christian one, it had a Hindu one, and it had a uh, a Muslim one, you know, and they kept the three calendars, you know, so people operated within three calendars. And, you know, Singapore attempted to, you know, it recognized that it didn't fit in with a liberal democratic model. So it built out, you know, tried to build up programs of shared values, you know, that Confucian values were really, you know, kind of shared by different communities that were not about liberal individualism, but more about a family and um, um, you know the relationships in between family members that fitted much more with an Asian pattern of um, uh, society, really. So, uh, David, one final question. So, you're I love discussing book titles, as you probably noticed, mm. and your title ends with so it's history's fools, the pursuit of idealism, and the revenge of politics. And I find the last bit, the revenge of politics interesting and perhaps a good place to end here is that 
revenge is often seen as a a bit of a vice if mm. you're seeking revenge. And I'm wondering that uh, what you've described is the is the rise and the hubris and indeed the fall because of its hubris of idealism that in its wake politics has come flooding back in. I suppose realism. Do you see that as a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing? Just a thing, I think. Although I, I'd say that. Um, so the way I, I would see it is that the, the, it's the problem of a, a kind of universalism that has, has left the West with with a, a problem. You know, does it go into permanent decline? That the 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 philosopher who thought about it in the Cold War was was Leo Strauss, I think, and he he said at the time during the Cold War when he thought the West was in problems then, as did you know people like Orwell or um, a neglected English critic whose quote I wanted to get in, it's closing time in the gardens of the West, you know, <laughs> Cyril, Cyril Connolly, 1950. But Strauss kind of reacted to that. He said, well, uh, the West had once seemed certain of its purpose, a purpose to which, in which all men could be united. The undoing of the assumption of its universal purpose to bring progress towards a society embracing equally all human beings, then as now engendered a sense of crisis. So Strauss said the only way out of this crisis is not more universalism, but a, practi a practical particularism that accepts a political society which remains what it always has been, a particular society with its particular values and traditions. And the primary task now is to sustain that rather than um, some Panglossian universalist project. David Martin-Jones, thank you very much. Thank you very much.